Reflections on Herman Melville's Moby Dick by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 I want to read a, I want to read a poem by W.S. Merwin. It's called The Drunk in the Furnace. For a good decade the furnace stood in the naked gully, fireless and vacant as any hat. Then, when it was no more to them than a hulking black fossil to a road unnoticed with the rest of the junk hill by the poisonous creek and rapidly to be added to their ignorance, they were afterwards astonished to confirm one morning a twist of smoke like a pale resurrection staggering out of its chewed hole and to remark then other tokens that someone cozily bolted behind the eye-holed iron door of the drafty burner had there established his bad castle. Where he gets his spirits it's a mystery, but the stuff keeps him musical, hammer and anviling with poker and bottle to his jugged bellowings till the last groaning clang as he collapses onto the riding springs of a litter of car seats ranged on the grates to sleep like an iron pig. In their tar paper church, on the text about stokeholes that are sated never, their reverend linger. They nod and hate trespassers. When the furnace wakes, though, all afternoon their witless offspring flock like piped rats to its siren crescendo and agape on the crumbling ridge stand in a row and learn. Isn't that a great poem? <laughs> In their tar paper church. You know, the, occasionally I read a lot of poetry, and occasionally I read these things, and I think, where did he come up with that? So, you know, their tar paper church, it just conjures witch burnings and tar and feathers. I mean, it. In their tall paper church on the text about stokeholes that are sated never, their reverend lingers, they nod and hate trespassers. <laughs> but meanwhile, somebody is down in his bad castle with his bottles and his clanging around and his singing, and their witless offspring flock like piped rats to its siren crescendo and agape, nice word because it's agape, and agape on the crumbling ridge, stand in a row and learn. We cannibals must help these Christians. Little thing on the Pequod, the ship they're going to go on. The Pequot Indians were Indian tribe in, in New England. The last major Pequot village was destroyed in a massacre in 1637, men, women, and children, by a large force of white settlers. So that's, the, that's where the word comes from. And the Pequot is, a, is a, um, another picture of the culture, in a way, uh, but a culture that has that though it has its roots in deeper places has become of late uh, a an imperialist one. And so he describes the Pequod when he first gets on it. Take my word for it, you never saw such a rare old craft 
as this same rare old Pequod. She was a ship of the old school, rather small, if anything, with an old-fashioned claw-footed look about her. She is an... There, there are layers of her meaning. She is an Old Testament ship from the old school with an old-fashioned claw-footed look about her. Lex talionis is the law of the claw or the law of the talon. It is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So she's an old, she's in the old school like that. But, and again you have this masthead connection with Christianity, her mast stood stiffly up like the spines of, th of the three old kings of Cologne. The old kings of Cologne are the Magi. The, the legend was that the, that the remains of the three Magi were in the cathedral at Cologne. So her mast stood up like the Magi. Her ancient decks were worn and wrinkled like the pilgrim-worshipped flagstone in Canterbury Cathedral where Beckett bled. So this is the Christian layer. But to all these her old antiquity were added new and marvelous features pertaining to the wild business that for more than half a century she had followed. She was a thing of trophies, a cannibal of a craft, tricking herself forth in the chaste bones of her enemy. All around her unpaneled open bulwarks were garnished like one continuous jaw with the long sharp teeth of the sperm whale. Scorning a turnstile wheel, the modern way is to have a wheel to steer ship, scorning the turnstile wheel at her reverend helm, she sported there a tiller, and that tiller was in one mass, curiously carved from the long, narrow, lower jaw of her hereditary foe. This is a ship that charted her course by reference to her enemy. You ever know any situations like that? Charted her course by reference to her enemy. That's the fatal flaw. In it's, it's such a typical human proclivity, you know. We have for the last, uh, to, to be topical here for a second, we have for the last at least eight and probably 40, 38 years uh, as a nation charted our course in the world based on anti-communism. Uh, and it has, uh, it has, it begins to produce the very replicas in us of the thing that we hate. Well, I'm going to be quick about, uh, well, I think I'll skip the Bill Dad and Peleg, the, the Quaker uh, owners, who uh, also have their problems with the text, I might add, and uh, who, ha who read it in a curious way. But uh, they demand that Quaker have papers to prove that he's a converted Christian. They don't want just any old pagan on their ship, you see. And do, do you have papers? And again, this is the takeoff on the, on the dead letter and the text and the... So the papers. Why said I he's a member of the First Congregational Church? <laughs> do tell now, cried Bilda. Is, is this Philistine a regular member of Deacon Deuteronomy's meeting? Queequeg here is a born member of the First Congregational Church. He's a deacon himself, Queequeg is. I mean, sir, the same 
ancient Catholic church to which you and I and Captain Peleg there and Queequeg here and all of us and every mother, son, and soul of us belong, the great and everlasting first congregation of this whole worshiping world, we all belong to that. And they allow us out. That's pretty nicely said, so they, they go along with it. The contracts are negotiated and the crew selected in the little tent set up uh, behind the mainmast of the Pequod. And when it's time to sail, they strike the tent. And there are a number of... There's a blending of imagery here that comes into play, and I think one of them is that we're about to enter the Exodus again. The great, one of the images of the Exodus journey is that the, uh, the, the journeying stops and the tent is erected. Tabernacle means tent. Uh, and, uh, and, then the, and then when the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire moves on and the journey must go move again, the tent is taken down and the exodus begins again. And I think that's probably why there is a reference here uh, to the tent because it says the order to strike the tent was well known to be the next thing to heaving up the anchor. And so they sail and it's Christmas. I think it's wonderful and important to see the overall implication of, the, of this novel that the sailing begins on Christmas. Well, it's Christmas time and they're sailing. And now you remember the mast, the, the three masts were likened to the, to the old uh, Magi and it sails at Christmas time. And so I wanted to uh, end with a very brief quote from the Gospel of Matthew and then a, uh, and then a poem. And I just wanted to quote this, these two lines from the Gospel of Matthew. So Joseph got up and taking the child and his mother with him, left that night for Egypt where they stayed until Herod was dead. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Ishmael uh, is half Egyptian. Anyway but it is a move into exile, wilderness, exodus, journey. And Ishmael is the one who can both reject and embrace the tradition at the same time, and the tradition has something to do with the paralysis experienced in the, in the presence of the text. So I want to read this part of the poem by Barton Sutter. We've traced the foreign familiar names chiseled in grim cuneiform. The rune stones resist interpretation. And so we've begun this reverse migration. God knows what we hope to learn. The motives of the Arctic turn? We murmur, uncertain what we're about. But counting together, we launch the boat. I swear by my grandmother's face to steer to the north, northeast. I stammer and repeat my faith in the dead, their hope, their anguish, buried alive in this, their language. To start out with a footnote in the uh, the whiteness of the whale chapter. And there's a footnote there where uh, Ishmael describes the first time he saw an albatross. And he says, As Abraham before the angels, 
I bowed myself. The white thing was so white, its wings so wide, and in those forever exiled waters I had lost the miserable warping memories of traditions and of town. Interesting allusions here, first of all to a whiteness that is at the very beginnings of the religious movement, that is to say, uh, at the place where uh, Abraham begins to be uh, chosen as the father of the chosen people, and also a reference to the whiteness which is so white that it is associated with the forever exiled waters. So you get a hint here of the exodus and of the wilderness experience or the, what comes later in the Hebrew tradition which is the parallel to the wilderness experience, the exile. And all of this is related to having lost the miserable warping memories of traditions and of towns. Well, late in the book, Ahab, gazing out at sea, remarks on these most candid and impartial seas where, to traditions, no rocks furnish tablets. Again, a reference to the Ten Commandments. Uh, the, these most candid and impartial seas where, to traditions, no rocks furnish tablets. Reminds one of those famous lines of uh, Rudyard Kipling, where he says, Ship me somewheres east of Suez, where the best is like the worst, where there aren't no Ten Commandments, and a man can raise a thirst, for the temple bells are calling, and it's there that I would be, by the old Mulmain pagoda looking lazy at the sea. Where there aren't no Ten Commandments, and a man can raise a thirst. But notice it is for the temple bells that there is a longing, albeit a kind of dreamy one. It's not long before that longing for the temple bells, which is also associated with the longing to get outside the gravitational pull of the Ten Commandments, uh, results in, in Kipling's words, a wasting Christian kisses on a heathen idol's foot. So this being at sea is to be, in, I think in Melville's sense here, is to be for a time at least outside of the strong gravitational force of the cultural uh, parameters, cultural coordinates. And there is, of course, in literature and in historical fact, some uh, dire warnings about the dangers with which that experience is fraught. In literature, we have things like The Lord of the Flies, the heart of darkness. In historical fact, recent historical fact, we have things like the jungles of Vietnam and uh, Jonestown in Guyana. Uh, what happens when one abandons those cultural coordinates before one is prepared for it or for some uh, uh, ill-advised reason? On the other hand, the wilderness, what Ishmael calls the forever, forever exiled waters, is the place where we return in a way to the prima materia. It's the place where we forget the old uh, conditioning and make ourselves available for a new movement of life. 
It's the dark night of the soul. It's the wilderness experience. It's absolutely essential that that be that the risk be taken at some point. But it is also absolutely essential that it be recognized as a grave risk so that precautions are taken. Now, when Moses wanted to lead the embryonic Hebrew people, the hapiru, Hebrew comes from the word hapiru. It was a, it was a, a, it was a piece of slander. Hapiru was something like what in English we, we, the term we call, the, the, the term wetback. Uh, these these Hebrews were simply the marginal ones, and they had no identity as a people. And so Moses had to keep them in the wilderness 40 years. Now, the reason for the 40 years was so that those who uh, had a slave mentality could die off, because those who were so conditioned to a slave mentality were simply unable to live the life that, uh, that uh, Moses' God was going to demand of them. This was not going to be a life easily led by slaves. So the wilderness experience required that uh, some period of time be spent so that that old conditioning could be done away with. So to, to be outside of the cultural confines for some time, the problem, of course, is that those cultural confines uh, give us to each other in a kind of a community. So Ishmael notes that the crew of the Pequod was made up largely of islanders, and he notes further that they are isolados. He calls them isolados in this forever exiled water. And he says, each isolado living on a separate continent of his own, yet now federated along one keel. Now federated along one keel. What a set these isolados were. There's, of course, I think, a hint here of, of the American experience, uh, federated along one keel. Melville was keenly interested in the, in the American experiment. And uh, in that sense, we, are, we Americans are people who have come from the far corners of the world and, and now find ourselves, to some extent, isolados and to some extent federated along one keel. Now, it used to be you could uh, only experience this uh, return to the wilderness or this exile or this being outside the gravitational pull of the cultural uh, coordinates uh, by making some fairly strenuous effort, usually in a geographical way, to get away from it, as Kipling's talking about. Uh, Ship me somewhere east of Suez, he says. So you had to go, you had to make a little effort. Well, thanks to the miracle of modern telecommunications, you can now do it without leaving your living room. Which is to say that the that the shoreline separating the culture, the cultural containment from the from the condition of being adrift or at sea, uh, is receding from us rather than us from it. Uh, Henry Murray, who is a literary critic but also a psychologist, says it I think in a memorable way. He says, "Today every waxing enthusiasm must confront an outgoing tide of culture." So things have turned around. The culture itself is receding from us. So we find ourselves increasingly, uh, as the tide recedes and leaves more and more of the life forms exposed to the air, you see, increasingly there are, we find ourselves isolados among isolados, without a cultural 
consensus that would give us back our own identities and, and give us some sense of community. Now, obviously, I'm overstating this, but you see, in a general way, a situation that's being dealt with, I think, symbolically in this text uh, has now come uh, very much into the forefront of our experience. Now, to give you something sort of halfway between Melville and us, here's a passage from T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, written in the 20s. So, uh, close to midway between Melville and ourselves, not exactly. Uh, but I think to see the, the progressive situation, uh, it's nice to take little freeze frames as we go along. So back in the 20s, Eliot put it this way. At the violet hour, the evening hour that strives homeward and brings the sailor home from the sea, the typist home at tea time, clears her breakfast, lights her stove, and lays out food in tin. Isolado. When lovely woman stoops to folly and paces about her room again alone, she smooths her hair with automatic hand and puts a record on the gramophone. Very subtle, but the onset of that condition, the isolado condition. Yes, this is in a very what we would regard as a very early stage of this uh, of this disorder. I mean, this is a long way from uh, from heavy metal and headsets and cocaine, but it's it's there. Yeats, writing about the same time in the, his poem "The Second Coming," turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. would like to talk about the best and the worst today, or at least to, to use that metaphor uh, in the, uh, in the uh, Kipling piece. He says, ship me somewhere east of Suez where the best is like the worst. And Yeats says, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. We might take a look at this portion of Moby Dick we're going to look at today, looking uh, all over the Pequod, really, uh, which is to say all over the world, but at the same time focusing on Ishmael and Ahab as representing uh, something parallel to what Yeats is talking about when he mentions the best lacking all conviction and the worst being full of passionate intensity. And in each of these cases, both are responding to the receding culture. This, what we might look at are two responses to the fact of a receding culture by isolados. So Ishmael says, now Ishmael is uh, doing his turn as a mastheader up in the top of the masthead. And he says, let me make a clean breast of it here and frankly admit that I kept but sorry guard. With the problem of the universe revolving in me, how could I, being left completely to myself at such a thought-engendering altitude, how could I but lightly hold my obligations to observe all whale ships standing orders, keep your weather eye open and sing out every time? And let me in this place movingly admonish you, ye shipowners of Nantucket, Beware of enlisting in your vigilant fisheries 
Any lad with lean brow and hollow eye given to unseasonable meditativeness and who offers to ship with the feet on instead of Bowditch in his head. Bowditch was the, was the authority on the navigational arts. And Phaedo was the friend of, of Socrates who engaged uh, in that uh, dialogue with Socrates in the last hours of Socrates' life about the possibility of immortality. So he says, these sailors had come with the feet on in their head rather than, rather than navigational text. Uh, beware of them because they're not going to spot any whales. William Lynch, I, there are a number of... This problem is so has become so uh, obvious, seems to me, in the last uh, half century that a number of perceptive uh, commentators have, have drawn attention to it using slightly different uh, metaphors or language. One of them is William Lynch, who's a, a literary and cultural uh, critic, among other things. And he says there are two responses to this... Uh, to this world which appears to be, um, he doesn't quite put it this way, but because of the terms he uses, I want to ha express it this way. This term, this world which appears to be uh, without an orienting voice. And he says the two responses are the equivocal response, one who uh, equivocates, and the univocal response. And we'll save the univocal response to comment on that until we get to Ahab. But about the equivocal response, he says, for these people who choose this escape from the dilemma, everything is a private world. Everything is a solipsism. And he used this, by the way, this corresponds to, if, if we want to keep our tables straight here, this corresponds to what uh, the great uh, depth psychologist Eric Neumann call, uh, referred to as the pleromatic mysticism the attempt to avoid commitment uh, in a situation where the, where the orienting, uh, where that which gave us some sense of the proper commitment has disappeared. And so we choose, in absence of those reinforcements, simply not to have any. And uh, he expresses the psychological dynamic of that. He calls it pleromatic mysticism. Well, likewise, for what Lynch calls the univocal, he, and he uses an example of an artist he says, an artist who wishes to be wholly ready for the next moment of imaginative sensibility would be typical of this equivocating consciousness. He says, but this readiness really involves a freedom of the imagination that must be, according to this opinion, equivocal. It must be completely and separately available for every new and separate adventure. Therefore, it must not be committed or polluted by any previous accompanying dedication lest the new moment be not altogether purely caught. Going on from one thing to another, stream of consciousness is a symptom of this. And it, there is a kind of stream of consciousness going on in Ishmael as he's at the top of the masthead. Uh, there is no sense of waiting and looking and expecting, but just a dr dreary, drifty dreaminess. And he says, lulled into such... A, this is uh, Ishmael talking now about his own condition lulled into such an opium-like listlessness. There are two opiates. One of the opiates is this, the, the equivocation, the opiate of a subjectivism, uh, the opiate of, uh, of what Neumann calls a pleromatic mysticism. The other one, of course, is what many people have made the point in the 20th century particularly that the new opiate of the masses is politics. So there's plenty of 
opium to go around. Well, this is his. Lulled into such an opium-like listlessness of vacant, unconscious reverie is the absent-minded youth by the blending cadence of the waves with thoughts that at last he loses his identity. There is no life in thee now except that rocking life imparted by a gently rolling ship, by her borrowed from the sea, by the sea from the inscrutable tides of God. But while this sleep, this dream, is on ye, move your foot or hand an inch, slip your hold at all, and your identity comes back in horror. Over Descartian vortices you hover, and perhaps at midday in the fairest weather with one half-throttle shriek you drop through that transparent air into the summer sea no more to rise forever. Heed it well, ye pantheists. <laughs> so typical of Melville, he gets into one of these long things and he ends it with one of, with some some punchline like that. Well, E. E. Cummings said, "Deeds cannot dream what dreams can do," but he wasn't talking about this kind of dream. He was mo talking more about the kind of dream that that uh, Martin Luther King had when he went to the mountain, see? But not this kind. This is not that kind of dream. This is dreaminess. It has no sense of commitment to it. And so we're told about it in a symbolic way even before we get the particulars of Ishmael's version of the disorder. We're told this close to the beginning of, well, in the second or third paragraph of, cha of chapter 35, of modern standards of mastheads, we have but a lifeless set, mere stone, iron, and bronze men who, though well capable of facing out a stiff gale, are still entirely incompetent to the business of singing out upon discovering any strange sight. And he's talking about statues of Washington, Napoleon, and Nelson. He says they are the modern masthead standard. But the problem with them is that they are bronze or stone or iron. And the problem with that is that they can withstand the storm, but they cannot sing out upon discovering strange sights. And this is what we need, is somebody who can take that office and sing out upon discovery, uh, not for the purpose of simply reverie, unfocused reverie. Well, that's the, the equivocal, the dreaminess. And before I have us take a look at Ahab, and his response, let me just read something that I'd like to use as a crease between these two. And this is, an, uh, this is from Paul Tillich's writings. And uh, we can look at, we can take our position on, on Tillich's insight and then look back at Ishmael and forward to Ahab and see how, they, how, what, how their response compares to it. Tillich says, he who waits in absolute seriousness, is already grasped by that for which he waits. He who waits in patience has already received the power of that for which he waits. He who waits passionately, now this is a, shall I underscore this word? Try it sometime. Waiting passionately. He who waits passionately is already an active power himself. 
the greatest power of transformation in personal and historical life. He who waits passionately is already an active power himself. The greatest power of transformation in personal and historical life. So to take that insight, now look back at Ishmael, who is simply on top of the masthead, engaged in a kind of stream of consciousness, reverie, pondering, but not pondering anything particularly. Not that passionate waiting, that attentiveness, that expectation, that hope. Not hope, as Eliot said, in not hope in something specific, because that would be the wrong hope, but a sense of hopefulness and expectation and waiting. Not that, but a dreaminess. So Ishmael loses his identity in a dreaminess, and Ahab acquires a kind of a kind of erzot's identity, a kind of false identity in doing the deed. It's a, it, there's, a, there's a good deal of the Faustian in, 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 this, in Ahab. Uh, the, the, the commitment now not to something worthy of it, but simply the narrow, blind rage of revenge, which has imbued him with something that that has the uh, the electromagnetics of a personality, but does not have the soul of a personality, and it's the electromagnetics of that of of Ahab that cause him to be so dangerous. So the text says of him. Now he would correspond if we're using these we're using these various uh, sh shining these various. Uh, peripheral lights onto this. If we use the Yeats thing about the best like all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity, here's Ahab representing the worst. Ishmael says, Ahab cherished a wild vindictiveness against the whale. He at last came to identify with him not only all this, all his bodily woes, but all his intellectual and spiritual exasperations. And oh, what a relief it is to find some place to put all that. He piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all the general rage and hate felt by his whole race from Adam down. And then, as if his chest had been a mortar, he burst his hot heart's shell upon it. He goes on to say, That before living agent now became the living instrument. If such a furious trope may stand, his special lunacy stormed his general sanity and carried it and turned all its concentrated cannon upon its own mad mark, so that far from having lost his strength, Ahab, to that one end, did now possess a thousandfold more potency than ever he had sanely brought to bear upon any one reasonable object. So there's, there's enormous leverage in this narrowing down of consciousness the way Ahab has. And the, and the unloading onto this mysterious whale of all of that, uh, all of those exasperations and woes. Tremendous uh, energetic leverage that's available because of that. So Ahab says, I'll chase him round Good Hope and round the Horn and round the Norway Maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up.
in part because he is so identified with him. Then the other side of the tally that has to be kept is what's this cost? What does this kind of focus, if, if Ishmael is so utterly unfocused, Ahab is so totally focused, what does it cost? What it costs, of course, is his humanity. And what there, I think we're privileged to be able to watch his humanity, even though we already know when we first see Ahab that he's lost it. Uh, Melville gives us, uh, without using the technique of flashbacks, he gives us some uh, progressive sense of that very briefly in these chapters. First thing he says is, more than once did he put forth the faint blossom of a look which in any other man would have soon flowered out in a smile. You get this hint of some vestigial humanity remaining in this man, but it just doesn't quite flower into a smile. There's a short and very, I think, wonderful and wonderfully symbolic chapter called The Pipe. And in order to get its message, I think we have to remember there is much about the pipe, and we'll talk about it in weeks to come, too, and smoke and so on. But you remember Queequeg and Ishmael having a smoke together from Queequeg's pipe and how that brought them together, cemented their marriage. Ishmael says, if they're, when, as they're smoking the pipe in previous chapters, Ishmael says, if there yet lurked any ice of indifference towards me in the pagan's breast, this pleasant genial smoke we had soon thawed it out and left us cronies. So in, in light of that, we can turn to the chapter on the pipe and Ahab lights his pipe and then he looks at it and he says, this smoking no longer soothes. What business have I with this pipe? This thing that is meant for sereneness, to send up mild white vapors among mild white hairs, not among torn iron-gray locks like mine, I'll smoke no more. This corresponds to that thing we in Dante where we were saying Dante's hell is physical proximity and spiritual alienation. And the 20th century solution to that is to eliminate physical proximity. And Dante's solution was to eliminate spiritual alienation. Well, here, Ahab, it is... This pipe is... The piping, the pipe and the smoking is a... is something to be enjoyed in the presence of others. You see? After dinner. And he realizes that it's no longer satisfying, but his solution to it is not to find the context in which it would be, but to throw it away and thereby abandoning another of the slender threads of his humanity that he's brought on the Pequod with him. And it, the text says, He tossed the still-lighted pipe into the sea. The fire hissed in the waves. The same instant the ship shot by the bubble the sinking pipe made. There's a number of times in the text where the word hiss is used uh, with, with great... Uh, uh, symbolic connotation. The fire hissed in the waves of that pipe. So Lynch, William Lynch says about the univocal person, he says, the univocal person is emotionally full of extraordinary energy. In fact, the kind of energy seems to be the mark of his whole character. He is a genius for unilateral passion. 
Apparently, a man of decision, actually, he is the very reverse. Because he never really entertains an option, a fundamental option. All of that is really pre-ordained, pre-determined. There are no real decisions being made by either Ishmael or Ahab. They have both found ways to avoid uh, the necessity of a real decision. Ahab fatally so, Ishmael not fatally so. That's why Ishmael becomes of interest to us because he he comes out the other end of this experience. But the te- Ishmael says of Ahab, there was an infinity of firmest fortitude, a determinate, unsurrenderable willfulness in the fixed and fearless forward dedication of his glance. Unsurrenderable willfulness. I think the way to understand uh, Ahab, perhaps, or one of the important ways, is in terms of what happened in the chapel, uh, in the chapel, three chapel scenes, where we saw that the Christian tradition was refusing resurrection. And Ahab is the one who is refusing resurrections at the point where they get refused. Not many of us, that, not to say this is universally true, but not many of us are going to refuse resurrection from the tomb. Most of us given the option of resurrection at that point, not always, but if, if you allow me to be playful here, we will not. that's not the point at which we refuse it. The point at which we refuse it is the cross. And this unsurrenderable willfulness is, I think, the key point in Ahab's personality where resurrection is being refused. Kierkegaard talks about uh, a sudden catastrophe or or an affliction or disaster that happens to a person. And he says it will be... When this happens, he said, first of all, it has to be unearned, unintelligible in any way, simply something that fell on the person. And he said, unless the person is very good at, at, uh, at dissociating from his own feelings with regard to that, there will be a period of despair. There will simply be a period of despair. And the only question, Kierkegaard says, is what are you going to do with that despair? Kierkegaard says there are two options. Uh, one is there is a there is a Stoic option, but the Stoic option uh, is 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 either so lifeless as not to be worth regarding, or is or is a temporary state between uh, between the despair and what you finally end up doing with it. Uh, but it, if, but for Kierkegaard he doesn't he just regards two of these options. One is he says uh, you become defiant. But the defiance really is not a response to the despair. It is simply an attempt to is an attempt to uh, override it, to uh, to preempt it, to camouflage it. And he says, if you choose the the uh, defiant response, it is only a matter of time before it turns into the demonic. Now I'm I'm offering this to you pre-digested. This is Kierkegaard. You, you can either you can either, uh, you know, go along with him or not. You might want to think about it. But at any rate, he's the man who thought about it, and here's what he thought. <laughs> he said, it's only a matter of time. 
before the defiant response to despair becomes demonic. The only other long-term response to it, according to Kierkegaard, is a religious response. And uh, Kierkegaard says, that is the point at which I, for one, became a Christian in, regard, in dealing with that despair. Now, a nice way to look at this is to go back and look at the great stories that are endlessly fascinating to us, and I think of two particularly. The great dramas, Oedipus and Lear. There are many others, obviously. But Oedipus and Lear both bear striking resemblances to Ahab. Both are great. Uh, they are people. They are men of greatness. Now Ahab is clearly uh, a a a personality to be reckoned with. He has, by the text says, he has an enormous intellect. He has very obviously a very powerful dynamic going on in him. So in that regard, much like Oedipus and Lear. The endlessly fascinating story about Oedipus and Lear is that they represent that crisis which comes when self and selflessness collide. And I think maybe the way to look at this is instead of using Kierkegaard's idea of defiance and, uh, and the religious response, use a metaphor which, is, which is, I think corresponds to it. And that is that Oedipus and Lear have before them an option. Either to become... The option is to be Prometheus. Prometheus stole fire and gave it to humanity. And for that theft, he is pinned forever to the rock. And every night, every day, the vulture comes and eats his heart or in some stories, his liver. And every night it grows back again. And he is defiant to the end. That's Prometheus. He is defiant to the end. And so Oedipus and Lear are, are two who, whose first response to this disaster, this despair, is defiance. It is the Promethean response. And what is endlessly fascinating about their story, even though the story of Oedipus's story is written 500 years before the Christian dispensation. It has this, the, 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 the mystery of Oedipus at Colonus is imbued with a sensibility, and written about the same time as Second Isaiah, by the way, imbued with that sensibility of the mystery of human suffering and how it puts one in touch with the religious depths and how it is only that one who can really bring a cultural cohesion into place again. Oedipus knows that wherever he's buried, that will be the cornerstone of the culture. Just like the John 9 Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. You want to know how, how it, where we find cultural cohesion, where us isolados find cultural cohesion? In the suffering, in the suffering love of a great one. I'm, I'm digressing, I think. Anyway, the drama in Oedipus and Lear is will that Promethean response be transformed into the crucified one, if I can 
use it in those terms. I realize I'm using uh, one particular canon's appreciation of this, but I but it, I think it I think it works okay. If that tr- if that Promethean response can be changed into the crucified one's response, part of this unsurrenderable willfulness leaves Ahab in the following condition. Quote, Moody, stricken Ahab stood them stood before them with a crucifixion in his face. In all the nameless, regal, overbearing dignity of some mighty woe. That's as close as I could find as to, to a conjunction between the Promethean uh, and the crucified one. Moody stricken Ahab stood before them with a crucifixion in his face. In that's the crucified one, but underscoring that is in all the nameless, regal, overbearing dignity of some mighty woe. So refusing refusing resurrection happens not in the tomb, but at the cross, at the suffering place, and it's whether the response is permanently defiant or only temporarily defiant. And that's the great drama in in Oedipus and Lear. And it is also the great drama in Ahab. But for Ahab, it is permanent. I hate to tell you that. We're only a few, you know, I don't want to waste the punchline on you, but I want to give an example of this uh, from the autobiography of Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde had this catastrophe fall on him, or maybe some people would say he brought it on himself. In any case, he was he was imprisoned for being a homosexual. He suffered greatly in prison, and he wrote De Profundis as a result of it. And he describes a particular moment. And I want you to, as I read this, watch the movement from Promethean to Crucified and watch what happens to him. He says... I bore up against everything with some stubbornness of will and much rebellion of nature till I had absolutely nothing left in the world but one thing. I had lost my name, my position, my happiness, my freedom, my wealth. I was a prisoner and a pauper, but I still had my children left. Suddenly, they were taken away from me by the law. It was a blow so appalling that I did not know what to do. So I flung myself on my knees and bowed my head and wept and said, The body of a child is as the body of the Lord. I am not worthy of either. That moment seemed to save me. I saw then that the only thing for me was to accept everything. Since then, curious as it will no doubt sound, I have been happier. It was, of course, my soul in its ultimate essence that I had reached. In many ways, I have been its enemy, but I found it waiting for me as a friend. Chapter 28 about Ahab, it says, His whole high, broad form seemed made of solid bronze and shaped in an unalterable mold 
like Cellini's cast Perseus. Very important, this, this simile or this comparison here. Perseus is depicted holding the head of Medusa. And it is the Medusa head which turns to stone. Ishmael refers to Ahab as being, seeming to be made of solid bronze. Well, that's one thing. That's his own problem. The alarming thing is that there is an allusion here to the cast statue of Perseus and without mentioning it, holding, holding up the head of Medusa. The alarming thing about Ahab is that he has that capacity to turn others into stone. So he goes on to describe, I think, where, wherein that capacity lies. Opposites no longer being held in tension. Threading its way right from among his gray hairs and continuing right down one side of his tawny scorched face and neck till it disappeared in his clothing, you saw a slender rod-like mark, lividly whitish. It resembled that perpendicular seam sometimes made in the straight lofty trunk of a great tree when the upper lightning tearingly darts down it and without wrenching a single twig peels and grooves out the bark from top to bottom ere running off into the soil leaving the tree still greenly alive but branded. Whether that mark was born with him or whether it was a scar left by some desperate wound no one could certainly say. By some tact... By some tacit consent throughout the voyage, little or no allusion was made to it, especially by the mates. Now that, especially by the mates, the three mates that are the three officers on board. Notice this. A very clear flaw, symbolically, in the personality and character and one could say leadership of this captain but for some unknown reason, by some tacit consent, throughout the voyage, little or no allusion was made to it, especially by the officers. I'll leave that to you for pondering. And now, to follow up on this idea of him not only being bronze, but having the Medusa head and therefore being socially uh, contagious, he speaks of the sultanism of his brain. He says that same sultanism became incarnate in an irresistible dictatorship. For be a man's intellectual superiority what it will, it can never assume the practical available supremacy over other men without the aid of some sort of external arts and entrenchments, always in themselves more or less paltry and base. In other words, he needs some kind of he needs, he needs to avail himself of sacramentals, if, if you will. Uh, he needs some liturgical uh, complications in order, to, in order to bring others into his own monomania. And the example that's used here is by Ishmael, parentheses, uh, Melville. Such large virtues lurk in these small things when, when extreme political superstitions invest them that in some royal instances, even to idiot imbecility, they have imparted potency. You see, if you play Hail to the Chief at exactly the right time, uh, or if you uh, unfurl the flag at exactly the right moment, 
or if you can or if you can uh, uh, give a speech to Wagnerian strains, and even if you're a little squeaky house painter, you see, if you if you can if you can bring to bear on on all that on all that uh, shallowness some of the liturgical arts, you can have an enormous power. And so that's what Ahab did, and that and it happens in the in chapter 36 called the quarter deck. And the quarter deck chapter is a store, is a play, as several of these chapters are. And it, it, it begins with stage directions. You have the name of the chapter, the quarter deck, and then it says, Enter Ahab, then all. So it's very much like a play. And you get something reminiscent of a Shakespearean opening. Do you mark him, Flask? whispered Stubb. The chick that's in him pecks the shell, twill soon be out. That is so utterly Shakespearean in terms of the little opening of a play. So Ahab orders everybody aft, which is up on his deck. The, the aft deck is the captain's deck, but he brings everybody up there. Vehemently pausing, he cried, What do you do when you see a whale, men? Sing out for him, was the impulsive rejoinder from a, from a score of clubbed voices. Good, cried Ahab, with a wild approval in his tones, observing the hearty animation into which his unexpected question had so magnetically thrown them. The magnetic image is used over and over and over again in here. And what do you do next, men? Lower away and after him. And what tune is it you pull to, men? A dead whale or a stove boat. Better dead than red, kind of thing. More and more strangely and fiercely glad and approving grew the, grew the countenance of the old man at every shout, while the mariners began to gaze curiously at each other, as if marveling how it was that they themselves became so excited at such seemingly purposeless questions. And now we get the only, you know, I said to John 9, Jesus said that when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to me. It's as though, and we learned from Dante a couple of times the, the demonic the, the best the demonic can ever do is parody the truth of the situation and if there is truth in the, in the John and I and Jesus's uh, understanding that the bringing together of people uh, happens at the cross then there must be a parody of that uh, in order to create this false consensus that Ahab is trying to convene. So he calls the mastheaders down and he takes this, the Spanish gold coin, the doubloon, and he nails it to the masthead. Now what you have to, as a play, what you have to be aware of is that as he's nailing it, he's getting them worked into their, uh, into their chanting. Now, what they they don't exactly say crucify him, but it is along that same line that he has got he's gotten them going. So he takes the gold, the precious gold, and nails it to the masthead. Okay, and we've said so uh, to the mast, and we've said so many times that that mast has that cruciform uh, implication. In any case, and then he says as he's nailing it. He says, Whosoever of ye raises me a white-headed whale with a wrinkled brow and crooked jaw, whosoever of ye raises me that white-headed whale 
with three holes punched in his starboard fluke. Look ye, whosoever of ye raises me that same white whale, he shall have this gold ounce, my boys. Let me go back and read that again. Remember that the text has said he at last came to identify with the whale. And I've tried to suggest that he is, as the people in the chapel were, refusing resurrection. Okay? So I'll go back and read this text again. Whosoever of ye raises me, a white-headed whale with a wrinkled brow and crooked jaw, whosoever of ye raises me, that white-headed whale with the three holes punched in his starboard flukes. Look ye, whosoever of ye raises me, that same white whale, he shall have this gold ounce, my boy. His identification with that whale, the reason he's willing to chase him all over the planet is because he represents that part of Ishmael he cannot get to, which is the guarantor of his resurrection. Now, I'm not, I'm not implying necessarily that Melville meant it that way, but it's not his book anymore. I, ha I tend to think he might have, but in any case, it's our book now, and there it is. And so all the, all the sailors cheer as he's nailing this gold coin to the mast. With swinging tarpaulins, they hail the act of nailing the gold to the mast. And there you have it. And Testigo says, you're talking white whale. You, are we meaning Moby Dick? Let's get to the... Let's, is this Moby Dick we're talking about, he says? <laughs> and then we get this. Now, uh, Robert Frost said, uh, you can get the rhythm of good poetry by listening to it through an inch-thick oaken door. Imagining listening to what Queequeg is going to say through an inch-thick oaken door, uh, because Queequeg uh, doesn't speak very good English. He's talking about Moby Dick. And he have one, two, three. Notice the word, tree. He have one, two, three. Oh, good many nail in him hide too, Captain, cried Queequeg disjointedly. And he have one, two, three. Good, me good many nail in him hide. Two, Captain, cried Queequeg disjointedly. Again, I have no idea whether Melville was this cagey, uh, but very strong image, crucifixion image there of, of, uh, of wounds in the side and the tree and the three, the three crosses on Calvary and all the rest. I wouldn't want to press that or have to defend that. And here's another one I wouldn't want to press or have to defend, but... He says, uh, he says to Starbuck, uh, Moby, it was Moby Dick that dismasted me. Dismasted me. See? That place where he needs to be. Aye, aye, it was that accursed whale that raised me. R-A-Z-E-E-D. Little play on words. M Melville warned us right from the beginning, get out your lectionaries and your grammars. Aye, aye, shouted the harpooners and seamen running closer to the excited old man. This is what happens, you see. You know, as soon as you locate where the real enemy is, you say, if you say it's Gaddafi and you, and you produce charts to prove it or whatever, 
you get this response, this social response. Aye, aye, shouted the harpooners and the seamen running closer to the excited old man. Steward, he knew it, the, time, the time was come for the sacrament. Go fetch the grog, he says. He says, hey, what's, where, where's this long face coming from, Starbuck? Starbuck is, Starbuck is, is a, is a, is a Christian man. Uh, but he has only, uh, he has only available to himself the kind of Christianity that came out of that chapel we visited back uh, in those early chapters. Uh, and it's not going to be up to resisting Ahab, but he tries at least. Starbuck is a, is a noble man and he tries to resist this, this, uh, sudden movement that's taking over this ship. And Starbuck says, I came to hunt whales, not my commander's vengeance. And so Ahab says, well, we'll have to... He says, thou requirest a lower, la a little lower layer. We'll have to go a little deeper for you, Starbuck. The rest of these people, I can whip them up into an allegiance quickly enough. I may have to work on you. Still independence in Starbuck, so he's going to have to go deeper still. Well, not deeper really, but he has to try another strategy. So he, he brings out the latest polls. He says, have you seen the latest polls? The crew, man, the crew. Are they not one and all with Ahab in this matter of the whale? Stand up amid the general hurricane, thy one tossed sapling cannot, Starbuck. The polls are on my side. And that doesn't work either, but he notices that something, there's a, something's happening. He says, speak but speak, aye, aye, thy silence then, that voice is thee. And then it says, that, that we're still in the play, there's an aside. And in the aside he says, something shot from my dilated nostrils. He has inhaled it in his lungs. Starbuck now is mine. Cannot oppose me now without rebellion. Something shot from my dilated nostrils. He has inhaled it in his lungs. 